When an emergency strikes, Preppy has you covered. Made in California, canvas and leather emergency kits packed with survival food, water, and first aid with optional emergency satellite communication. Go to Preppy.co. That's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash filmweek. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle. A week ago, we lost the original movie version of James Bond, Sean Connery. Though he had many terrific performances during his long career, the Bond role was particularly influential. A whole genre of secret agent movies followed. We'll remember Connery with our critics Leo Lowenstein and Tim Cogshell. This week's movies include Let Him Go, starring Kevin Costner and Diane Lane as grandparents on a mission to rescue their grandson from a dangerous family. Proxima stars Eva Green as an astronaut ready to undertake her mission on the International Space Station. How she navigates her roles in a demanding profession while being a highly involved mother is at the heart of the film. It's Film Week. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app, or perhaps you're listening to the podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm joined this week by critics Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Synagogues.com and Leo Lowenstein, film columnist for the Santa Monica Daily Press. We begin this week with the mystery drama Let Him Go. Kevin Costner, Diane Lane, and Leslie Manville star. The film is written and directed by Thomas Bazooka, based on Larry Watson's novel. Tim, what would you think of Let Him Go? Well, this is well done. Uh, effective, if a little bit familiar thematically. Um, uh, we, have, we have Diane and Kevin Costner together again, Ma and Pa Kent, uh, more, more or less. And... In this thriller that has a sort of hell or high water feel to it, uh, they're playing this this sort of uh, grandma and grandpa. They have this son who's married to this young woman, um, uh, and they have a grandson. The son, very early in the film, dies. Also very early in the film, uh, the daughter-in-law remarries this, this, this man. Uh, very, very soon, uh, Diane figures out that no, this is not right. He's abusing her and he's abusing that kid, but I'm definitely going to get my grandson back. He spirits them away off to the Dakotas and uh, Kevin Costner and Diane have to go after them. And that's when we meet uh, Leslie Manville, uh, just absolutely wonderfully maniacal. <laughs> as the as, as the matriarch of this of this Dakota family, these wee boys, and uh, and you know where we're going, and we know how it's going to go down. Uh, but uh, but uh, she's going to get her grandson back, and Pa Kent is going to make sure it happens for. Her. Sounds like a good drive-in film, which is where it's screening here in Southern California. Let him go, Lael. I wanted to see the movie that Tim saw. It just it didn't play on my screen. Um, it was. Uh, Gosh, it had all the elements of a good thriller drama um, with a hint of, you know, the, the sordid details um, that Leslie Manville's performance should have brought out. But it, it, to me, it just felt so over the top. Every bit of it felt predictable. It felt um, I could see it coming. And, you know, even... Kevin Costner and Diane Lane, two actors that just seemed so made for each other. And yes, they were in Man of Steel together as um, Superman's Earth parents. 
but they didn't, it was like there was something flat in their chemistry this time. I just didn't feel it crackle, you know? Um, Did it have a decent sense of place, Lael, or not? Ooh, not as much as I wish it had. Um, you know, there. this is another thing with, with these kinds of films. You, the landscape plays such a role. And I didn't feel like, um, with the exception of, you know, there's there's one character who plays um, who plays an indigenous an indigenous person, and uh, he is sort of very tied into the land. But otherwise, I didn't feel there was much of a sense of place or um, of the landscape sort of being as menacing or threatening as it was supposed to be. Because Tim, that's you mentioned the hell or high water territory, and one of the things that was the star of that film for me was the location. It just the sense of place was all over that film. I I I, I think I felt it a little bit more than Lael did with this film too. It's set out there in the Dakotas, but we have to take this road trip with them. It's also set in like 1962 or something. So they're in like this they're in like this 1958 uh, uh, station wagon, and there are no cell phones, and there there are no light light poles, street lamps, or anything like that. So when they're driving down these long lanes of highway out into the Dakotas, and when they come across a town or two where they can ask about this family, I, I got that sort of moody feel. You're in the middle of a west. You're watching a Western uh, is, is what you're doing. And it's going to go down. Yeah, sure. Lael's right. You, you know exactly how this is going to go down. But, you know, you're kind of waiting for it to go down. And I liked it. Let Him Go, the film rated R. You can see it at the Mission Tiki Drive-In in Montclair, at Riverside's Van Buren Drive-In, at the Paramount Drive-In as well, and in select indoor cinemas in Orange County. Let Him Go stars Kevin Costner, Diane Lane, and Leslie Manville. Proxima uh, takes us to the International Space Station. The film is written and directed by Alice Winokur. Lael, what do you think of Proxima? I thought this film was extraordinary. And we talked about how there wasn't a real sense of place, or I didn't feel there was a real sense of place and let him go. But Proxima had an enormous sense of place and space for me. It's about this, this woman played by Eva Green, who is... Um, an astronaut and she has been training her entire life to be on to be on this mission to the space station which is the last manned mission before um going to mars and so it's set you know a little bit in the future i guess um but it's it's this extraordinary kind of um tension for her because she also has a young daughter um between how to be the most extraordinary astronaut that she's been training her entire life for and how to be a mother. And, um, and she goes through a lot of her time in isolation, thinking of her daughter, um, writing messages to her daughter, but she feels this intense sense of self-torture about, you know, what she's, you know, what she could have been, you know, being what she's missing with her daughter. And there's also all this maternal guilt that I could certainly relate to very much. Um, It's, it's very, very powerful. And the screenwriter, um, wrote the screenplay for a movie from a few years ago that I liked a lot called Mustangs. Um, um, and uh, it's it's just a really powerful, powerful film. I thought Eva Green gives one of the best performances. Wow. Proxima. What did you think of it, Tim? 
Oh, I concur completely with Lael. I like this movie because despite the sort of moody space monster mystery sort of feel that it has, it moves very slowly and we are watching them train quite a lot, watching her train quite a lot. It's actually about exactly what it presents, a mother-daughter story. This mom is about to leave her daughter for a year. I like that they also do this other thing. Matt Dillon's in the film. I think he might be the mission commander or something like that. He's going out there too. Now, he's a father and he's married and he has these kids. And they juxtapose her and what she's going through to him and his family slightly. And he's not dealing with any of that stuff at all because he's a man. So this is very specifically about this mother and what this means to her and her daughter and the way that dynamic works out. And there's nothing about it that should be uh, the thing that he's going through. Why would it be? Um, her, di her her situation and her relationship is different than than his. And I like that the filmmakers, Anna, uh, who, yes, Mustang, Lael, the, about those five orphan girls uh, that mm. sort of get married off. Very, very powerful movie. So it, here she's showing some directing chops that I, that I thoroughly enjoyed. Proxima is the film from writer-director Elise Winokur, Eva Green starring Matt Dillon, also in the cast of the film that's unrated. Uh, and uh, it's a French-German co-production. Leo, what, uh, what are the languages in the film? Many. Okay. Um, French. <laughs> As you'd expect for the International Space Station. Russian, Russian, yes, yeah. French, German, Russian, English. Am I missing any? Um I think that might be it. I, th I thought it was it was meticulously researched. I mean, not being an astronaut myself, I don't know exactly, but it it seemed to have this this real every every training exercise, every aspect of training in water, training, you know, in these simulated um, flight machines, you know, all of that just seemed so specific and so well executed. I I was really quite floored. Well, and and it sounds like that the the sets that they used for the film were um, were not low budget. You felt like you were really in the real Absolutely. place. Yeah, and when you contrast it with a movie like, say, Gravity, which a lot of people criticized because they felt like it didn't didn't feel like Sandra Bullock's issues didn't feel realistic to a lot of people. This to me felt very, very relatable um, mm. and very powerful. We're talking about the film Proxima, which is unrated. It's on video on demand services, iTunes, Amazon Prime Video, and Voodoo. Jungle Land takes us to the world of bare-knuckle boxing. Charlie Hunnam, Jack O'Connell, Jonathan Majors star, Max Winkler directed. He co-wrote the screenplay with Theodore Bressman and David Branson Smith. Tim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A uh, uh, bare-knuckle Boxing, yeah, that whole world there. Max made a Max is Henry Winkler's son. He made a wonderful little movie called Flower a couple of years ago, which is why I'm a little a little surprised by this. I guess every male filmmaker of a certain age fancy they have a sort of gritty Scorsese Tarantino film in there <laughs> that they that they like to get out, uh, which is fine. Uh, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, except that you know Scorsese and Tarantino already made all those movies. So no matter what you do, you're doing a knockoff. And, and the knockoff might be perfectly entertaining, but it's always going to be a knockoff. we got these two brothers, uh, kind of rapscallions. Uh, their mother died when they were really young. Their dad dumped them. So it's just kind of been them. The younger one can fight bare knuckle street brawls. The other one is kind of like his hype man and always trying to make a deal and do something. This is a big fight out in California. Uh, the big brother, though, is a little too hustly. And uh, he owes money to this guy. And he agrees to escort this young woman. Looks to be about 
19 or so, maybe a little younger, we're not sure, across country uh, and drop her off at this very specific address, you know, so that his brother can go and have this fight. That B storyline, that B storyline, that young woman and what's going on there, that's the thing that sort of undoes this movie. That's just a bunch of flat out testosterone driven thriller movie contrived crap. If the movie were just about that boy trying to fight his way out of the gutter in street brawls, it would have been a better film. All right. We're talking about the movie Jungle Land, directed by Max Winkler, starring Charlie Hunnam and Jack O'Connell. It's rated R. You can see it at the Vineland Drive-In in the City of Industry, select Orange County theaters, and starting next Tuesday, it is available on multiple on-demand platforms. Also this week, maybe next year, a documentary about the Philadelphia Eagles football team. Kyle Thrash is the director, Lale. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed this film. It, you know, even though it was, of course, completely predictable because we know how it ends, um, it was one of the most just heartrending, um, like um, personality bearing, just just full of the the grit and the glory of the underdog, the whole, you know, Rocky Balboa being from Philadelphia and these Philly fans who have for their entire lives loved the Eagles and for so many years awaited any sort of redemption. The fact that they had it in in this particular Super Bowl season of, of 2017 against the New England Patriots, it was amazing to see. The commitment of these fans is unparalleled. One of them, you know, takes his entire retirement savings and builds a essentially a, 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 a an Eagles tavern, celebratory tavern in his backyard. And, you know, to, uh, other one, another one creates a YouTube channel that gets thousands and thousands of followers. And, you know, they, they just, um, everything they have is invested in their team. And it, it was really so moving. And I thought it just, it, um, it it did exactly what it was supposed to do, but in a really kind of revelatory way. Maybe next year, Tim. Look, hey, the, the guy that built the thing, he, he, that was the actual retirement money. They were supposed to be going to Florida. <laughs> and he and he built that wacky thing. These people are freakish. I'm sorry. This is just all insane it's now. Even beyond face painting, huh, Tim? <laughs> oh, we're, on, we're way on the other side of that uh, with these sort of characters, and I suppose we can call them characters in, in, in this documentary. Now, look, uh, we're, here, we're here in Los Angeles. We're coming off of two big old championships here, you know, in, in the last in the last uh, a few weeks or so, and and I've seen how rabbit fans can be in places. I'm from St. Louis. We had the, you know, St. Louis Cardinals baseball yeah. team, and when I was a child, it was the St. Louis Cardinals football team. Of course, they abandoned my city uh, and went to Arizona, and then the Rams moved to St. Louis. I got to tell you, I checked out on football about 30 years ago because of all of that. So traumatic as I'm watching, experience. a very traumatic experience. So as I'm watching this, I have, I'm sort of re-engaging my youthful uh, you know, football fan, and, I, and I, I appreciate it. But I do think that there's something rather freakish about some of this kind of stuff. And if this filmmaker here hadn't been so enthralled by all of this himself, he might have seen that. He might have seen that it's weird to take your retirement money and build a bar in your backyard. Um, instead of going to Florida, it, but none of it, none of that comes off as, frankly, bizarre as it actually is in this movie. That's you know, doing what it's doing. I disagree. Yeah, I I think that we're um, 
I think we're left to make our own conclusions about about whether it's freakish. And, you know, there is one guy you asked about face painting, Larry. There's a guy who's having his head tattooed. with. um, (laughs) Well, that is well beyond. (laughs) That's freakish. Right. Right. I know. I'm not saying it's not. And I think the fact that he should that that the director, Kyle Thrash, is showing you this stuff, you know, in, in, in close up and with with kind of an unrelenting camera. I think he's. He's not making a judgment, but he's he's leaving it out there for us to make the judgment. And um, you know, it's 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 extraordinary footage that he has that he followed the team through, you know, or he followed the fans through these many months leading leading up to this championship. Maybe next year, unrated documentary, Lemley's virtual cinema and multiple on-demand platforms. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPECC. Much more to come with our critics in a minute. Wonderful to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle, joined this week by critics Leo Lowenstein and Tim Cogshell. Tim's going to tell us about the comedy 18 to Party, set in 1984. Jeffrey Rodas, the writer-director, Olivia Clark, Tanner Flood, and James Friedson Jackson star. Tim. Yeah, yeah, I love this angsty little period drama set in 1984, like you said, Larry. And despite the fact that almost the entire film takes place in the sort of alley slash parking lot behind this little nightclub where these kids, half a dozen or so eighth graders, are waiting to see if they can get into this nightclub because they're hoping, you know, a particularly sort of lax guy is going to be working the door who will let them in a little bit later if they if they wait there long enough. Uh, and, and a few other kids, sort of little old, older kids roam in and out of this group. They get all that mood, that 1984. What was the card that everybody loved in 1984? It's like the Trans Am, the one with the big firebird on the, on the, on the hood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that was the car in 1984 if you were in high school. And they get all of that right with the mufflers. And, and as we're watching these kids talk and you're wondering, you know, what this little movie is about, we start to realize what these kids are dealing with. Uh, there have been a recent spate of suicides. Seven kids in their little town have killed themselves. There's been been a spate of UFO sightings, which was a big thing in the early 80s. There were all these UFO sightings, and their parents are just kind of absent from all of this. And you fall into these conversations, and we hear these kids, and we come to feel what they're feeling. And it's just this really wonderfully done, kind of funny, kind of dramatic little movie, mostly set in the parking lot behind the building. 18 to Party is the film. It's unrated on Lemley's virtual cinema. It sounds like the kind of thing Richard Linklater would do, right? Dazed and confused in some Exactly. Way. He's right in that territory. And, and Jeffrey wrote Love, Liza uh, from about a decade ago, which was among the last one or two of Philip Seymour Hoffman's film, a really, really wonderful little film called Love, Liza. He was a producer on it, I think. Jeffrey Rota, the writer and director of 18 to Party. The documentary City Hall takes a look at Boston's government with veteran director Frederick Wiseman. Lael. Well, this is no small feat, this movie. This is four and a half hours long. Um, Like many Wiseman films, it is about institutions. It's about the nature of the workings of the institutions, the people that work at the institution. And to say it's granular would be an understatement. Having said that, it's also got a whole host of wonderful little rewards in it. Um, It is about the workings of Boston's City Hall. everything from, you know, everyone from its mayor down to um, city uh, archaeologists 
um, to traffic control people, to um, um, officiants performing marriages. And you, you get the, um, this incredible scope of how all these people work together. And at the same time, there's a lot of intimacy there. My favorite moments were not so much the ones where you, you see these, these city hall meetings where there's lots and lots of talk about budgets and how to sort of make things work, but more the sort of revealing little moments. For example, there's a, a marriage ceremony taking place and you just see the officiant performing the marriage and then suddenly Wiseman just turns the camera and you see that it's two women getting married and you don't realize um, because he hasn't made, he hasn't, there are no title cards. There's not a lot of explanation that's given. It's very much a direct cinema in medias race. You just, you're walking to the middle of a scene and you don't necessarily know what's going on. You have to play catch up and figure it out. But because of that, you very much have this feeling that you're, you're in the middle of everything. And um, I learned a lot about Boston. I learned about the incredible ethnic diversity of that community, which um, is reflected in the people working in City Hall and, um, and in all different walks of life in Boston and, um, and how that city holds together. And, and it was um, a pretty extraordinary piece of work from one of our great lions of documentary filmmaking, who is, by the way, 90 and still going. Still making films. Frederick Wiseman, City Hall, takes a look at the very inner workings of Boston's government. And Lael, this is a film, it must be safe to say, seeing it at home is probably better because four and a half hours of a documentary on city government, probably best to consume in chunks, right? A hundred percent, Larry. I was actually trying to figure out how they would show it in a theater if they would have had an intermission or what I had to take a couple myself, but um, it was, uh, you know, it's actually much better when you can watch something like this at home too, because you can absorb little chunks of it. And then what was interesting was, even though it was four and a half hours long, once I had gotten to the end of it, which ends with on this very powerful note, I wanted to go back and watch some of the beginning because the ending put the beginning in a di- completely different context. Ah. Well, I was I was very glad I was able to do that. I didn't go for the entire second reviewing, but I did watch a few more minutes of the beginning. Very good. City Hall, Frederick Wiseman's latest documentary, unrated Lemley's virtual cinema to see it. Call Me Brother, a comedy starring Christina Parrish and Andrew Dismayukes. Carlos Rada also in the film. David Howe is the director, and Christina Parrish, the star, is the screenwriter. Tim. Oh, what a deliberately cringe-worthy film. Cringe just makes you cringe all the way through this movie. It's sort of wonderfully creepy in that way. It's flirting uh, with a certain taboos. We have this uh, brother and sister who grew up together until they were about seven years old, you know, taking baths together and hanging out. They kind of look like twins, but one's actually a little bit older than the other. And then for some reason, uh, when the parents divorce, the, divorce, the father takes the boy and the mother takes the girl. Uh, fast forward, they're about 17 years old now for um, reasons. The mother has to leave the daughter with the brother and her ex-husband. So they're united for the first time in about seven years. And there are these flirtations. Uh, the taboo of incest is being flirted with here and thus all that cringing that happens in this movie. But fortunately, this movie is a comedy. It, it's, it knows it's making you cringe. It's poking at you real hard. And uh, it, it pays off in the end. 
Call Me Brother, uh, the film from uh, writer Christina Parrish, director David Howe, Parrish and Andrew Dismukes, stars in the film, which is unrated on Lemley's Virtual Cinema. The Informer, uh, a British-U.S. co-production crime film that stars Rosamund Pike, Joel Kinnaman, and Common. Andrea Stefano is the director and co-screenwriter. It's based on uh, the novel Three Seconds. Lael? Uh, this is sort of an okay um, thriller with Rosamund Pike as an agent who is responsible for um, the undercover um, performance of, of an ex-con who um, decides to get himself put back in jail to infiltrate the mob. And it's not uh, always 100% striking where it needs to. There are times when, particularly given um, the, the, um, the, the dark lighting, it was, it was sort of hard to see everything that was going on. There were also times when I couldn't really follow exactly what was, you know, what was happening narratively. It was a little bit tricky. Nevertheless, there's enough suspense generated by the fact that this guy is in the, is, is working undercover for the cops and he's in, he gets back in prison and he's sort of, you know, um, he's got a, a whole secret agenda going on that I was, I was held along with the suspense and I enjoyed it enough to stay along for the ride. Rosamund Pike, always good. Um, pretty, pretty decent film overall. The Informer uh, is the crime film Rosamund Pike stars. It's rated R. You can see it at the Mission Tiki Drive-In Montclair, the Van Buren Drive-In Riverside, select Orange County cinemas, and available on demand on Google Play, Vudu, and Fandango Now. The Dark and the Wicked, a horror film starring Maureen Ireland and Xander Berkeley. It's written and directed by Brian Bertino. Tim? Yeah, yeah. Journeyman, uh, sort of low-budget horror director Brian is. Lots and lots of movies. Wonderful little movie called Monster with Zoe Kazan a couple of years ago. This thing is also well done. Actual horror movie. Uh, very, very moody. You have this uh, old man who's dying out on this farm with, with his old wife. He has a son and a daughter who return home to sort of like take care of him as he, as he makes his way off. You know something's really creepy right away because the mom keeps telling them uh, it doesn't want you here. It doesn't want you here. One of those, you know. Yeah, but they just yeah. don't seem to notice that she's saying that. <laughs> and and and, uh, and 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 we have this dark and creepy, uh, you know, um, a horror movie. Uh, lots of jump scares and all that kind of stuff. But it it moves slowly, and and beneath it all, there's this little family drama that's playing out too. That has something to do with this brother and sister, adult brother and sister who've come back to take care of this. So all together, it adds up to a fairly sophisticated and dark little creepy movie. Probably should have came out last week. The dark and the wicked for the week after. Halloween, in case you're still in the mood, it's unrated and in select theaters and on several on-demand platforms. Kindred, a British thriller that stars Tamara Lawrence and Jack Loden. Uh, the film is directed by Joe Marcantonio, uh, who co-wrote the screenplay with Jason McColgan. Tim. Yeah, yeah. And, and Fiona Shaw, who uh, you, you will know as Petunia Dursley in all of the Harry Potter movies. I think she's in all of those movies uh, in, in this movie. And Tamara Lawrence, they're the thing in this wonderful little movie. It's kind of like a Rosemary's baby kind of feel here. Uh, this this young woman goes out to the very massive estate of her of her boyfriend. She's pregnant. And they're basically going there to tell the old mom that, look, we're going to move to Australia. We don't really want to hang around here anymore. Um 
very early in the film, he dies. And that uh, that mother played by Fiona Shaw, she's not gonna let that woman leave there with that baby inside her. She wants that baby. And thus we get into a very scary uh, movie. Well acted, beautifully. Tamara Lawrence is just wonderful. I did not know her work, uh, a black British actress. And of course, Fiona Shaw is Fiona Shaw. Joe Marcantonio is the director and co-screenwriter of Kindred. It's unrated and available on demand on Google Play and Vudu. And Where She Lies, a documentary directed by Zach Marion. Lael. This is a, a really compelling story and kind of a decent documentary that I wish there had been different footage available for. But it's um, the story of a, a, a woman who um, was got pregnant as a teen, um, is told that her baby dies, but uh, was in fact later found out that perhaps the child was taken away from her and um, may have been raised by someone else. So she spends much of her life wondering, you know, what happened to this child. So um, the filmmaker decided to um, unearth this story and and, um, in so doing um, excavate certain details of this woman, Peggy's life and um, it's it's moving. It's it's painful. Um, I wish there had been more different footage available because a lot of what he's relying on is relatives of people that are not not even here anymore to tell their version mm. of the story. But um, basically, a, a moving documentary. Where she lies, Tim. You have a couple of quick thoughts on this. Yeah, the, the, it pivots on a deathbed quote unquote confession by Peggy's mother about what had happened before. Her mother on her deathbed tells her that baby didn't die. And that's what it pivots on, and I think that's what makes it compelling. The film is unrated where she lies the documentary on Google Play, iTunes, and Vudu starting next Tuesday. I want to take a couple minutes to remember Sean Connery, who died last Saturday at the age of 90, of course, best known for the earlier in his film, uh, in his career films that he did as James Bond when he established that character's portrayal in Dr. No back in 1962. But of course, Connery had a very distinguished film career uh, post-Bond, including winning the Best uh, Supporting Actor Oscar for his great performance in The Untouchables. There was uh, their starring performances in The Wind and the Lion, The Man Who Would Be King, and Robin and Marion, The Hunt for Red October, The Rock. The list goes on. Tim, your, your thoughts about Sean Connery? Indeed, my favorite Sean Connery film is is The Untouchables. Uh, that's 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 the favorite my favorite Sean Connery performance. Uh, you bring a knife, you know, they bring a knife, you bring a gun. <laughs> you know, I mean, lines like that come out of Sean Connery. Great performance, and, that, and uh, just a wonderful performance. My second favorite Sean Connery film, though, is uh, is Outland. And then from there, I think we can move to to, to films like Medicine Man. And I love them playing Indiana Jones's dad and Indiana Jones oh, yeah. and the Last Crusade. Uh, uh, the Name of the Rose uh, it was a, just a wonderful Sean. Connery performance and then of course he's that Scottish Highlander in Highlander and and and, and I and I say this because I you know you notice I haven't mentioned the, you know his known performance in, in as 007 you know the the sort of uh, anchoring 007 he was not my favorite bond Roger Moore's my favorite bond but even without any of those films Sean Connery still had an enormous career uh and I just thought he was fantastic yeah Lael, just quick thought on on Sean Connery I mean what stands out to me is how that Bond character that he inhabited first, you know, spawned all these different movies and TV series with similar characters. 
It did. That's right. OSS um, 177, that uh, or 477, that was absolutely came out of that. And for most of us, he was the indelible bond. He was bond. And, you know, it, I think that haunted him throughout his career in many ways as well. But of course, he remade himself magnificently and um, and to great acclaim and deserve that Oscar for the Untouchables. We're remembering Sean Connery, who died at the age of 90 at his home in the Bahamas last Saturday. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPECC. Coming up, we'll talk about a new biography on Cary Grant. It's a fascinating look at the actor who moved between light comedic roles and, of course, in others to more serious performances. It's Film Week. You're listening to The Overture from North by Northwest, the Alfred Hitchcock classic starring Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint. One of the great performances of Cary Grant, whose life is detailed in Scott Iman's brand new biography, Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise, uh, and a wonderful subtitle for a book uh, by Scott Iman, who's written a number of prominent uh, biographies of prominent Hollywood figures. Scott, so good to have you with us, and let's start with the subtitle of the book, because Cary Grant himself talked about how Cary Grant was an invention. Elaborate, please. Well, he was always very open about the fact that his name was Archie Leach. He worked it into a you know number of his film, couple of his films as sort of sort of in joke for for everybody that was in the know, which was everybody in the motion picture business. And he would even talk in interviews about you know uh, being brought up in Bristol and uh, under the name Archie Leach, and it amused him. And the reality of his the emotional reality of his life was that he devised Cary Grant incrementally as a way of dealing with the fact of being Archie Leach because Cary Grant was more or less about 140 degrees away from Archie Leach. The, the, the similarity in that they both cared a great deal about clothes and about appearances. Uh, but uh, Cary Grant was uh, immeasurably suave, even when being pursued across a cornfield by a crop plane that's dust and crops where there ain't no crops. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, uh, imperturbable in most most circumstances, unless he was playing comedy, in which case he was uh, conversion hysterical. Um, but Archie Leach's life was one of of uh, nearly perennial anxiety, which uh, Cary Grant on screen rarely uh, indicated uh, or embodied. So it was a, it was a, it was, so Cary Grant was his. Uh, his uh, alter ego, shall we say. And an enduring uh, character. He, his childhood, which you describe in significant detail, was emotionally fraught, uh, only child whose uh, older brother died um, extremely young, um, not long after infancy, and mm-hmm. that that loss of the brother seemed to have a huge effect on Leach's parents and then their relationship, particularly his mother's relationship to him. And tell us about that. Well, his brother died before Archie was born. Uh, and so when Archie came along, his mother was <sighs> distraught that it would lightning would strike twice and that she would, you know, lose the child a second time. So she she hovered over him ceaselessly, uh, wouldn't really let him out of her sight. 
uh, and it caused uh, something of a rift between uh, the parents, uh, although there were problems in the marriage basically from the beginning because they were very different people. Uh, but in return for, for having the kid around her all the time, she demanded a kind of emotional fealty. Uh, she, she didn't really trust him with anybody else. She didn't, uh, uh, want him, uh, uh, basically establishing bonds with anybody but her. So one day when he was 11 years old, uh, she disappeared and, uh, he wasn't really sure where she went. And uh, his father told him that she'd gone off to the seaside and which sort of evolved over time into your mother passed away. So Archie grew up uh, to manhood thinking his mother had died. Uh, in reality, his father had institutionalized her. Uh, he found out she was alive in 1935 when he was a rising young star at Paramount Pictures. So he went through 24 years uh, of his adolescence and young adulthood thinking his mother had died when in reality she was ensconced in an insane asylum about uh, six to eight miles away from his house in Bristol. You detail how Cary Grant you had this, particularly early on, this real search for family and how the Pender acrobatic troupe that he joins as, what, 16 years old and and becomes, I guess, almost the 14. Or four, he, he was it 14? He was 14. He was 14. Wow. He got kicked out of school when he was 14. He knew what he wanted. He didn't want to be in Bristol and didn't want to go to school. It's sort of quasi-emancipation, I guess. And he so he takes to the road with, with Pender's acrobatic troupe, but... Um, was that sort of the first family that he found? Absolutely. Absolutely. He had found, he had fallen in love with the theater by uh, uh, going to the, uh, uh, the Bristol Hippodrome, which is a, still there. It's a beautiful palace. It seats about 2,500 people, you know, three tiers of seats, red and gold uh, uh, decor. And he would go backstage before the show and between shows. And he would see the camaraderie. Of, of the music hall performers, of the vaudeville performers, uh, the easy way they related to each other, the, 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 the chit-chat back and forth. And it was everything he hadn't had at home. And he realized that it was going to be an actor's life for him because he wanted that feeling of an extended family because he didn't, he, he didn't have any basis for feeling that with his actual family. What? So show business became the family he'd always wanted. One of the things I love is you, you quote so many of the performers that, you know, many of us are familiar with, George Burns and uh, Jack Benny and others, who who shared about how vaudeville was this incredible group of people, you know, many of them outsiders in the broader culture, but who had some sort of a talent that people would pay for, and that they really became a kind of, though they were competitive— also a community where they supported each other. And I loved those accounts in your book, Scott, because they just, they painted such a picture of this entertainment subculture. Well, it's actually, it was actually a little bit like life in the military on the battlefield, because you're a million miles from your home. Uh, you're you, basically the only people you could rely on were the other people that were in the same boat you are. So the performers formed bonds, even though in one sense they were competing against each other. But the, uh, the wonderful thing about vaudeville was you were a, a vaudeville bill would have a, one or two comedians, a monologist, an animal act, maybe a juggler. But you didn't have five jugglers competing against each other. There was one juggler competing for laughs or for the audience's attention with a stand up comic or with a, 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 a dramatic playlet that lasted 15 minutes, say. So 
you were all in the same boat, but you weren't directly competing with each other. So that was the beauty part of it. You know, you could actually offer tips about how to hold an audience's attention and, and you could study the other acts and learn by what they did, uh, what tricks uh, uh, one comedian had to, to, to win an audience over to his side. Uh, because Archie realized very early on that what made a great performer was projection, projection of personality, projection of not so much technique, but projection of personality. The, you, you, if you could get the audience on your side in 30 seconds or, or 60 seconds, you were home free. And of course, uh, he comes to Hollywood as uh, an actor, starts out, starts to get attention, uh, a couple of Mae West films. But let's hear from 1938's romantic comedy, Bringing Up Baby, of course, early in Cary Grant's career, a lighter comedic role with Katherine Hepburn, Howard Hawks' 1938 film. Now, just a moment, Susan. Don't think that I don't appreciate all you've done. But, oh, it was nothing, but, David, really. Just a moment. But there are limits to what a man can bear. And besides that, tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to get married. <laughs> what for? Well, because... Be- <laughs> well, anyway, I'm going to get married, Susan, and don't interrupt. No. Now, my future wife has always regarded me as a man of some dignity. Privately, I'm convinced that I have some dignity. Now, it isn't that I don't like you, Susan, because, after all, in moments of quiet, I'm strangely drawn toward you, but, well, there haven't been any quiet moments. Our relationship has been a series of misadventures from beginning to end, so if you don't mind, I'll see Mr. Peabody alone and unarmed. Without me? Yes, without you, and definitely without you. From Bringing Up Baby, 1938. Before we take a break, Scott Iman, where did his accent come from? How did he create that? Well, the Bristol accent is a completely different accent than the one he came up with. Actually, the Bristol accent is a working man's accent. It's a it's a working class accent. Uh, going into the theater, uh, he, he had to get rid of it unless he was going to be playing farm foreman because the English theater basically delineates people by their accent. That's why so many English actors of the 30s and 40s wanted to sound like Leslie Howard or Ronald Coleman. Uh, So he had to come up with something. So what he did was uh, work very hard on getting rid of the Bristol accent. And he he got a touch of Cockney in his voice from the boys in the Pender Troupe, many of whom were indeed Cockney. Hold that thought. We'll have to take a break. We'll continue our conversation with biographer Scott Iman, Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise. More to come on Film Week on KPCC. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC as you listen to the main title theme from the 1940 classic The Philadelphia Story, starring Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, and Jimmy Stewart, Franz Waxman's uh, score from that film. We're talking about Cary Grant's life in the terrific just-published biography, Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise by Scott Iman. I highly recommend it. Just extremely well-written, but a fascinating, in-depth account 
of the complexities of Cary Grant, the character that Archie Leach created from a fairly young age and which he carried out throughout his life, a man that you would have thought is a bon vivant, a man about town, instead more comfortable sitting at his TV tray watching television at night, much to the consternation of of, uh, at least some of the five women that he married over the course of his life. Scott Iman has written a number of biographies of prominent Hollywood figures. Scott, you were just telling us before the break about how uh, Archie Leach uh, arrives in Hollywood, how he decides on this accent, which was nothing like the working class Bristol accent of his youth. That's very true. I I talked to some people in Bristol when I went there, and uh, they always were amused by the accent because they said a lot of English people don't even think that's an English accent, what he actually, (laughs) uh, what he talked like. And it's true. To the American ear, it sounds English, you know, but to the English ear, it's something else entirely, (laughs) which is why it's called Mid-Atlantic. It's not really English. It's not American. It's something he devised on its own and taking a little bit of Cockney, uh, trying to probably adopt a little bit of Ronald Coleman because every actor wanted to sound like Ronald Coleman if you were English in that era. Who wouldn't, yeah. Exactly. And but he was a much more energetic actor and a much more energetic speaker than a Ronald Coleman. So the words tended to come come tumbling out of his mouth. And what he ended up with was that that strange, uh, wonderfully imitatable accent. You know, uh, of course, Cary Grant, with the the light comedies or romantic comedies, establishes himself with the movie going public. Um, but some of the movies that are most memorable are the ones he did with Alfred Hitchcock, including the classic North by Northwest from 1959. One of his later roles here is Roger Thornhill opposite Eva Marie Saints, Eve Kendall uh, from North by Northwest. The moment I meet an attractive woman, I have to start pretending I've no desire to make love to her. What makes you think you have to conceal it? She might find the idea objectionable. Then again, she might not. Think how lucky I am to have been seated here. Well, luck had nothing to do with it. Fate? I tipped the steward five dollars to seat you here if you should come in. Is that a proposition? I never discuss love with an empty stomach. You've already eaten. But you haven't. Gary Grant, Eva Marie Saint. Uh, Eva Marie is a, a friend of the program. She's been with us many times, and um, I, I always enjoyed our off-mic conversations as well. And Scott, uh, as as she told you, I mean, she speaks so highly of Cary Grant and his generosity to her in their acting together. Um, and and that kind of stands out because there are other people, of course, with whom he co-starred uh, who had maybe you know more complex relationships with him and weren't all his fans. Well, he was pretty good with most actors because he, re- he as an actor himself, as a young actor himself, he didn't get much help from stars. <laughs> he was, you know, you, he was on his own uh, because that's the nature of show business. Uh, so he worked very hard to make a scene come alive. Uh, on the set. And he was very good with especially young actors. I mean, Martin Landau talked, excuse me, Martin Landau, who was making his first film in North by Northwest. He talked about how hard 
uh, uh, Grant worked and how he was very democratic, small d democratic, with even a, a, a very young, fairly inexperienced actor like Landau. You know, he was perfectly happy to to offer assistance or, or to throw something in that would make that other actor look good. So he was very good with other actors. There were people in the production end of films who, who could find him extremely difficult, however. He was a warrior. He was a nitpicker. Uh, even on a script as good as North by Northwest, which is very witty, just from that little ep- yeah. episode he just played, uh, the repartee is 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 nicely done. Uh, but after he signed the contract, the more he looked at the script, the more he thought there's no there there, which is basically the whole premise of the film. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> there is no there there. Yeah. You know, it's a mistaken identity. He's not he's not the guy they think he is. Uh, and he didn't see how he could uh, uh, keep the balloon aloft for two hours, you know. Uh, and he was—he could be extremely difficult because he's tended to find uh, nitpicky things with even really excellent scripts and make the writer's life difficult to make the production personnel difficult because his anxiety spread out. He wasn't one to contain his anxiety. Well, and, and you write about his, his search, particularly later in, in life, in middle age and later, to really deal with that and uh, psychotherapy, uh, using LSD many, many times, which he felt enabled him to, to have breakthroughs and to deal with some of the, the childhood um, challenges that he had and feelings of self-doubt and all of this, which I find fascinating, really, examining, because we're not used to to reading that with with public figures like Grant because he was so open about it and talked about those psychological challenges and there of course always is the question about his sexuality was was he closeted was was he actually gay um and you know talking with Diane Cannon and you know you you ever in the book do uh, you know the the women who who were married to him definitely thought he was not gay but sure. you you get into the nuance here of how he saw sexuality and, and share with us how he viewed it and, and how he described his sexuality. Well, a friend of his who, who got close to him in the late, late years of his life, a uh, young man, uh, they would talk about this kind of thing. And, and, and uh, this friend, Bill Royce by name, uh, was uh, a, a bisexual, essentially. He had relationships with both men and women. And uh, Grant said that he thought uh, uh, gay relationships were nothing to be ashamed of or to be proud of, for that matter. He said they're just, uh, they just are. It just is. And he said they're part of the, uh, he said, to not experience all the uh, 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 desires that you might have is to just play one part all your life. You know, you, you should try on different parts and different personalities. Uh, and, and the implication, of course, was that, that he had done that. Uh, as I say in the book, uh, uh, it depends on which team you're rooting for. Uh, you, you, if, if you want, you can, you know, hope that Cary Grant was gay because that's somehow, you know, uh, having him on your side is, is a plus. Uh, same thing uh, with, with straight or some combination of, of the above. But as I also write, uh, Archie Leach, neither Archie Leach nor Cary Grant ever played for any team but their own. Well, and and uh, his nuanced view of sexuality and and seeming comfort in in his variety of experiences comes through in that conversation. So many people that you interview for this book, I I just loved uh, reading that their perceptions of Cary Grant, the tremendous challenges that uh, Archie Leach faced in his life, and how out of that he was able to create 
this character who moves so easily from light comedy with such a, a great touch and timing as well to serious dramatic roles. Cary Grant, a brilliant disguise biographer, Scott Iman, the book just recently published. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. From all of us at Film Week, have a terrific weekend. Thank you so much. Thank you.